Ever since I was a kid, I always dreamed of being an entrepreneur. Never, ever dreamed of going to Wall Street. Never was interested in going to Wall Street. I was always bugged by the fact that Wall Street, while it has integrity about the fact that it's only about money, it's only about money. And there is way more to life than money. And my parents had raised me to try to make the world a better place in whatever way that I could, as corny as it sounds. And they lived their lives that way. And I felt like I wasn't. I didn't feel like what I was doing was immoral, but I felt it was amoral. I was helping the wheels of capitalism spin faster, but not necessarily in a direction that I particularly believed in. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein. I'm here with Dave Balotsky, and this is episode 103. And, you know, I've had a bunch of entrepreneurs on before, and I will continue to have more. In fact, this season, several more are definitely planned. And I really enjoy it because, I mean, I love entrepreneurs because they're risking things. They're going for it. They're trying to change the world in some way, big way, small way, but they're trying to change the world. They see a problem. They're trying to solve that problem. And I think that the mindset of the entrepreneur is one that I hope each of us, whether we're entrepreneurial or not, whether we are in business or not, each of us can adopt. I mean, it really is a can-do attitude. It really is, okay, I got a problem. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to try to solve this problem. And I'm not just going to complain about it. And that's a pretty important life skill. And so I like to have entrepreneurs on. But today's episode is with Dave Belotsky, who is the founder of Uncommon Goods, And I'll tell you all about that company in a moment. Some of you may already know about it. But the title for this episode is Living the Dream, Endless Hours, Deep Fear, Long Struggle. That's what it was. Dave is very honest about how tough it was, especially in the early going. I mean, now it's a sizable company. And while, you know, challenges never end, they're really in a lot better place. He's established something. He's created something special and meaningful and profitable and offers really a great work environment and social environment for people that work for him. So he's done it, but it hasn't been easy. And sometimes we don't realize just what that sacrifice is to establish something new. And then other times, you know, including in some other podcasts, it gets kind of glanced over, you know? Yeah, it was hard in the first, in the few years, we worked really hard, but then this happened. And then all the kind of good news starts. But this time, you know, in this episode, we do spend some time well getting into the weeds and the details of what it was like and really put yourself in the shoes of Dave Belotsky as he created this company. His goal in creating Uncommon Goods was to introduce more people to creative design in a sustainable way. And, you know, the company's been around over 20 years, but those are themes that really resonate today even more so than maybe they did 20 years ago. He may have been a little bit ahead of his time. Uncommon Goods is a hub of creativity collaborations. They work with designers to help get their products made and they get onto their website. They have all kinds of really cool, interesting products. They have a lot of things for gifts. I'm sure you're going to look at the website on Common Goods and you'll see some of the stuff that they carry. You know, people want original. People want originality. They don't want the same thing everywhere. That's what Uncommon Goods does. And they try to do it in a sustainable manner. And as he says in kind of the official statement about the company, treating everyone with dignity and respect paying a living wage, 
using environmentally friendly materials and working with vendors who share similar practices. And maybe unsurprisingly, Uncommon Goods is a founding B corporation. What's really interesting about Dave also is that he was a managing director of Goldman Sachs in an earlier life. And he specialized in investment research in the retail sector. And he was very successful at it. I mean, he made it up to MD, the managing director, and he left it all to create this company. He's very active in community service in New York's Lower East Side, where his family actually has lived for generations. He was a founder of Comprehensive Youth Development, which is a nonprofit with a mission to provide support services to disadvantaged public high school students. And he's been involved with that for almost 30 years. So three quick headlines before we get into the podcast. Number one, how do you compete with Etsy? Because some of the products that Uncommon Goods sells reminded me a little bit of some of the Etsy products. I don't know that he liked that comparison, but I'm sure a lot of people make that comparison. How do you compete with Etsy? But forget about Etsy. How do you compete with Amazon? How could you possibly compete with Amazon as an e-commerce company? And Dave has been living that battle every day and it's not done. And he'll describe what that's like and he'll describe how they've tried to differentiate themselves. Second, how does someone actually give up a really big payday at Goldman Sachs to start a new business and as a B Corp, no less? What kind of person does this? How do they do this? It's got to be someone that is really driven by mission, by having an impact that is not just about making as much money as he or she can possibly make. And I think in case of Dave, he had an epiphany at a certain stage in his career and he left Goldman Sachs and he left before a very big bonus was coming as well to start this company, Uncommon Goods. Really remarkable, unusual. And he tells that story. And then number three, as I alluded to right off the top in my introduction to the episode, you know, endless hours, deep fear, long struggle. You know, entrepreneurs that are quote unquote living the dream are working like crazy. And Dave talks about that. He talks about what he was afraid of and what he was worried about. And you could feel for him and you could understand. And, you know, we talk about empathy. Well, when you listen to Dave, you can empathize with where he was at. And I think we could all actually cheer where he's at today. He wouldn't want me to say, you know, the coast is clear. There's always a new problem every single day. Amazon, for example, is not going away, but this is a successful business and he created it and it took a long time to make that happen. So it's a tremendous story. Dave is very thoughtful, self-effacing, extremely insightful about e-commerce, about retail. So there's lots and lots of tips and ideas that come up throughout the episode. So let's welcome Dave Belotsky to the SIDCast. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and today I am here with Dave Belotsky. Hi, Dave. Hi, Sid. Great to be here. Thank you for taking some time from your business and lots of other things going on. I want to start with Uncommon Goods. What is it? Uncommon Goods is an online retailer of creative design. We work with lots of independent makers to offer an array of products, mainly gifts is what people use us largely for. A lot of the product handmade, most of it made here in the U.S. And was it hard to come up with the name Uncommon Goods? It was very difficult to come up with a name with an available URL, you know, a domain. So uncommongoods.com was actually available and lots of other names were not. So you started this business. There were people buying and creating all kinds of names, I think, in those days, what, in the late 90s? And there was this hot market for anyone who would put any product and call it a dot, literally, that's where the dot-com term came from. And then they would go and sell it to someone who wanted to create a business around it. 
Yeah, and it was also very controversial at the time I started the company to have a name that was longer than six characters. And so Uncommon Goods, nobody is going to type uncommongoods.com. And fortunately, they did. It turns out that it's not that tough. So I'm sure everybody asked you this. So let's get this out of the way. How are you different than Etsy? So Etsy was actually part of the original business idea for Uncommon Goods. Sadly, we were a little early. So 1999, I think it was probably about five or six years before Etsy, And our original business plan incorporated Etsy. I had worked on eBay's initial public offering as a research analyst and saw the opportunity for both what Uncommon Goods does, which is take inventory, have an edited assortment, and then also offer a marketplace, an eBay-like marketplace. And 1999, not too many artists had their own digital cameras. Mm -hmm. It was early for the idea. And Etsy's concept is really much more like eBay. They offer, I don't know, 100 million different products. We offer about four or 5,000. So it's high quality, edited, limited assortment. We let the artists do what they do best, which is create their work. And we handle the marketing, the shipping, the customer service. Oh, that's interesting. So it's really a partnership with these. And you use the word artist, not producer. I would say we offer an array. There are some things we sell that, you know, anyone would consider art. Others are more functional product. So yeah, maker, artists, manufacturers, we cover the waterfront. The majority Mm -hmm. of what we sell is in fact handmade. Right. And certain percentage or a lot are exclusive to you? Yes. In the age of Amazon, if you don't have product that can't be found on Amazon, Lord help you. So yes, we realized 10 or 15 years ago that we had to build a strategy to have things that were not available elsewhere. So close to 40% of what we sell is exclusive. So that makes me wonder about what the deal is for the artists and producers that they are signing up with you. You know, in a different kind of level, I do a lot of speeches and you work with speaking agencies and some of them want you to be exclusive to them. And what they offer you, what they offered me is, well, we could get you into all these different places, but everything has to go through us. And I always preferred kind of running my own show. But you're dependent on, and part of your business model is this exclusivity. So I'm wondering how that works. And I don't know if it, what your pitch is or what they, what, sure. how do that works? So basically it's mutual benefit. Okay. Mm-hmm. There are no long-term contracts typically, and it's a situation where, If you're a maker and you have a product and we think we're going to do really well with it, we might agree to buy a certain amount of that product. And that might be more than you think you're going to sell in a year across every retailer that you can come up with. So it's really a question of, is it worth your while? Is there enough business that Uncommon Goods is going to do with this particular product? And we're not asking you to, you know, so the analogy in your situation would be if you're giving speeches on leadership and you speak about 10 different subjects, leadership is one of the 10 subjects of business that you focus on. We might want to represent you on the leadership front. And so we're looking at specific products and asking for an exclusive on that individual product. We also do a lot of co-creation. We have a very talented buying team and we also have an in-house product design and development team where we work with our vendors to co-create product. That's really interesting. So that's a way that you add value to some of the producers, some of the artists that they might find valuable to bring it to market. 
it's not just curating, but it's kind of shepherding a little bit. We try to meet them where they are. You know, so if they don't have the money or they don't have the time or the expertise to get a particular product made, we might say, hey, we can make that for you. Or they're able to make 20 a year and we can make 200 or 2,000. Right. And so we might pay them a royalty or a licensing fee. We've got lots of different arrangements. Is it hard to find? I mean, how much time do you or I don't know if they're buyers or curators that you have in your firm? How hard is it to find these kind of original creations? So it's very easy to find uncommon and unpopular items. (laughs) It is very difficult to find uncommon and popular items that are not broadly distributed. So it's very difficult. It's a tough business. What's the uh, secret sauce here? What have you learned about how to do this? Determination. Have a terrific team of people. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think the most, you know, not everybody is terrific at, it's not just identifying the product, it's building relationship with the maker and helping work with them on new ideas. And so I think it's most important is having the right team and keeping them engaged and motivated. I was very involved in the actual buying in the early days, but not so much anymore. So you probably have some products that get hot, maybe more than you anticipated because you ordered whatever you ordered. And then you go back to them and say, let's make some more. That's just a preamble to this whole question around fast fashion, if you will, you know, what Zara has popularized, at least for fashion, because it's so hard to predict what do people want? How do you do that? I know there are people, including you, trying to figure that out, but it's very, very hard. So you let the market speak and then you react really, really quickly. Is that something you do or think about? Yes. I mean, we try not to think of our product as disposable. I'm more of a slow living advocate than fast living. I think a lot of the things that we do in our society quickly create a lot of waste. But predicting inventory is really tough. And we have a big spike in demand during the Christmas season between Thanksgiving and Christmas. We do a large amount of our business. And so our motto is often wrong, never in doubt. Actually, I'm joking, but my adage is if you want to forecast accurately, forecast often. And one of the advantages that we have is that we are sourcing mainly domestically, mainly in the U.S. And so the lead times are not nearly as long. You know, as you pointed out, some of our makers have limited capacity. And so to me, that's some of the appeal. You know, people often like product that is not ubiquitous. And so it's an ongoing challenge and you know, one that we have a terrific planning team that works on, but we are far from perfect. You know, it is true that you can get certain set of products, like lots and lots of things anywhere in the world. I mean, if you look at some of the big brands, they're every high street in every city in, in the world. And so there is an attraction to finding the unusual thing, the uncommon thing. But then when it gets hot, you really want more. You know, it's kind of like, it's not exactly the right analogy about talent, but you, you know, you hire I'm a big sports fan, and I've had a couple of CEOs in baseball from the Blue Jays and the Red Sox on in the past on the Sidcast, and we talk a lot about talent, but you find someone and you think it's a singles hitter, and next thing you know, uh, he develops that uppercut that gets you into the bleachers, and you wish you could figure out how to bottle that. And the solution in baseball are these advanced metrics, and so that's my question for you. How do you do this? To what extent is it art versus science? I would say it is a combination of both. And we have seasonality curves for different types of products. 
So we know, for example, that kids' products don't scale as much at Christmas as, let's say, an inspirational deck or perhaps a book might or a board game. Board games scale, you know, won't sell well throughout the year and then November, December really spikes. So we'll look at history of various segments of product and then put these new items, because the biggest challenge is with new items, with items that have a few years of history, they do tend to fade over time, but that's a more predictable sales curve. But new items are very tough. And so we typically will put those new items in a merchandise category, look at the history of what other similar items have done in the past, and then track it against that. Then we also have to look at how much promotion is that item getting? Is it in a print catalog? Is it on social media? Are we featuring it in emails? And there's some amount of trying to predict. And then also when you make a big buy, you also try to influence it by saying, hey, we got a lot of this. Let's make sure we sell it. So it's a little bit of a balance. Yeah, that's actually an important point in terms of analytics because you want to sell it so you do more for it. See, it's a little bit harder to disentangle all the efforts you do versus maybe some of the predictive things that you do. I had visiting my class at Tuck maybe, it's got to be three, four years now, Mickey Drexler, who's kind of this legendary guy, you know, right. CEO of J. Crew of Gap before that, and the classic merchandiser. Yeah. And I don't follow retail nearly close enough, and you, of course, made your career not just We'll get to what you did before Uncommon Goods, but that's what you're all about. And I want to go back to this merchandising thing. And to what extent has that been surpassed? And it's my impression it has from the Zaras of the world and many others by analytics. I don't know if there's AI going on in there. I don't know what exactly is happening, but I think the old method of just trying to figure out what people, what the customer will want based on hunches and intuition and experience that's a short term game. You might win in the short term more out of luck than anything else. Tell me if that sounds right or not to you. I think it depends on the category. And I think in every category, there's a balance of art and science. Because the reality is that when you're talking about new product, somebody has to create the new product. Okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you can do that with analytics, but some of it's inspiration and insight. And so, you know, we created a product a few years ago called the Pistachio Pedestal, and there were elements of analytics in that. We knew our customer liked to entertain, gift giving was important, and we said, what could we offer our customer that was a serving item? And so we came up with this two-level server where you had pistachio nuts in one level and the shells in the other. But, you know, how well is that going to sell? You know, I would challenge you to come up with an analytical program that tells me how that's going to perform versus the same product for olives and olive pits. Because we did that and the pistachio pedestal did incredibly well and our olive equivalent did not. And so I do think there is an important element, certainly in our business. I'm not as knowledgeable about the apparel business, but certainly in our business, You know, insight, inspiration, gut matters a lot, and it's not all analytics. If you're a business like Etsy with 100 million items on your website or Amazon, they don't care what they sell. It's not even their product, if you will. And so that is more just like a marketplace. 
For us, we're doing the job of editing for the consumer, handpicking the product, and in many cases, creating the product. And I think there is a lot more creativity and inspiration in that. Yeah, interesting. I was looking at your website and you have something called Uncommon Experiences. Is that a new idea? It's an old idea that we've offered in small ways in the past through outside vendors. And we hired somebody this year to offer virtual experiences for the first time. And it's something that we're excited about, getting great feedback. And that's about building your community providing some value added and creating new revenue source. All of those? Yes. One more than the other, as you conceptualize. I mean, I don't know if it's a moneymaker compared to the main business. Not at this point, but Uncommon Goods was not a moneymaker for four years. So, you know, it takes time. You know, I was just speaking with the woman who runs that business for us, and she said Mother's Day was a very, very inspiring experience for her. She saw lots of kids you know, kids, young adults on screen with their parents as well, probably hundreds, if not thousands of miles away, but connecting virtually. And obviously during COVID, that's much more important. But the reality is that many people live far away from their loved ones. And we're much more comfortable thanks to COVID with video connection. And I think that will continue to be a big opportunity. Yeah, that's right. Everyone says they're fed up with Zoom and everyone is fed up with Zoom, but it's not going to go away once we get to the other side. It's become part of, I mean, even in teaching, we all can't wait to get away from it, but it creates some nice advantages. Like it's not that hard to invite someone to come be a guest speaker in the classroom. They don't have to fly up to little Hanover in Hampshire. This could take you a whole day to get to. You just click on the computer and you're in front of everybody. And that's not a bad thing. Yep. What about retail stores? Another thing you know a lot about, have you ever opened a retail store or do you think it's like the craziest idea ever for you? Uh, I think it is a logical extension. We have operated at Grand Central Terminal pop-up shops, two Christmas seasons and one Easter season, and the Christmas business did very well. To me, it's a question of a couple things, the main one being focus. So there are lots of so-called digitally native, meaning companies that started out as e-commerce businesses that then layered on stores because what they found is that it got very, very expensive to advertise beyond a certain point online and having physical stores was a way of growing revenue more cost-effectively than another Facebook ad or another Google ad. For me, I feel, and maybe I'm blindly optimistic, but I feel like we have unlimited potential. Our potential is limited by our creativity and imagination. And, you know, I look at Amazon, which is thousands of times our size before they opened their first stores and bought Whole Foods. And so I don't think that we need to operate stores and the complexity of inventory management systems and people management is just honestly something I don't have a strong appetite for. We're a privately held, independently owned business, so we don't have the same pressure on us to grow that a private equity or venture cap back business would have. Yeah. I was thinking also of Warby Parker as an example of a company that made a big splash online with their whole concept buying eyeglasses and you could upload a photo and you could see you wearing all these glasses, but their stores are all over the place. In fact, 
going back to Mickey Drexler, who I think is either an advisor or board member, he was strongly advocating for Warby Parker to open up stores. I have no idea if that's a big revenue generator for them or not. But to me, it's opposite to the whole logic of e-commerce to add all the bricks and mortar. But yet, because it's happening so often, it's got to be adding some value. I mean, if Amazon is doing it and they're ahead of everyone when it comes to analytics and figuring out how to do this. So what you said is it's a form of advertising and promotion. But as you know, in New York City, for example, even today with lower price and lower commercial rental real estate prices, it's still kind of a crazy amount of money to spend. It may be, it may not be. I mean, it's all a question of return on investment. And yes, advertising is a piece of it, but distribution is a piece of it as well. You know, Amazon keeps adding distribution centers, but they're not going to have a distribution center on every street corner. They're not going to be able to get everything to you in an hour. And there is a segment of the population and there's a certain amount of merchandise and demand that people are going to want to pick up in stores. So I think if you want to grow your market share, you know, physical stores, which probably account for 75, 80% of retail demand today are always, always meaning the next 50 years, I believe, going to play a role in the marketplace. You know, people probably don't even realize that because all we talk about is e-commerce, it seems. But in the U.S., it's still a, I mean, it's not a small percentage, but it's much smaller than bricks and mortar. I think in the U.K., e-commerce has really accelerated even faster than in the U.S., especially over the past year. So you mentioned Amazon a few times, and obviously Amazon is beyond gigantic. Occasionally, I talk to entrepreneurs, and you're a little different because you've been in business a long time, and you're not a startup. But the question comes up on, well, you know, couldn't Google do this? Couldn't Facebook do this? And couldn't Amazon do this? And I know you've thought about that in your case. What's the logic? What's the reason why you're either not worried about Amazon trying to do what you're doing or figure that you'll still be able to survive and have your niche? I worry about everything. (laughs) So It's probably a good idea, actually, for someone running a business. Yeah, because just about anything that can go wrong has gone wrong over the past 22 years at one time or another. So better to be ready for it than be surprised by it. You know, Amazon made a fairly major push with a lot of PR into handmade maybe three, four years ago. And, you know, retail comes down to three things. It comes down to selection, meaning the merchandise, Mm -hmm. service, and price, okay? Amazon wins hands down on price, and on service, if you define service as convenient speed of delivery, you know, almost everybody's got Amazon Prime in terms of our target customer. And a lot of people have the Amazon app, your credit card information is loaded in there. It's friction free or close to friction free shopping. The one thing we have is selection. Okay, that is of the three-legged stool, that is our critical competitive advantage. We still have to offer and constantly do work to offer better service in terms of faster shipping. We've offered a free shipping program for $19 a year. You can get annual free shipping through our Uncommon Perks program. Less expensive than Amazon Prime, but not quite as fast. We don't have 100 warehouses around the country. But I worry, you know, that... 
people who sell to us, our vendors, do sell on Amazon. And Amazon is like this giant vacuum cleaner looking to suck up every ounce of demand in the marketplace. And they will not rest until they do. And, you know, our job is to not get sucked up <laughs> into their vacuum. And having product that they don't helps protect us. You know, and we don't sell our product on Amazon because what Amazon will do or somebody selling on Amazon will do is if we're selling our product, they're going to show competitive products next to it. And if competitive products don't exist, some enterprising individual will create a copy of the product. And then you can go complain to Amazon, you know, and pound your head against the wall. We just choose to try to avoid that world. But I'm concerned about them. They're a ferocious competitor and yeah. I don't like them, but I respect them. Right. So where did the idea come from? So you were, I guess you were at Goldman Sachs as a retail analyst for a long time, maybe, I'm not sure, 10, 12 years, perhaps. And then you left. This is going to sound odd to my students who all want to work at Goldman Sachs, of course. Not all, but some. And then you left to start this kind of quirky company selling unusual items. What was going on in your head that made you say, this is the right move for me right now? Sure. So it was a lot of things. So ever since I was a kid, I always dreamed of being an entrepreneur Never, ever dreamed of going to Wall Street, never was interested in going to Wall Street, but I had paid for college myself, taken out student loans, and didn't have an idea for a business, nor did I have any money when I got out of college, though my dream was to start my own record label at some point. Fast forward 14 years, and every one of those 14 years, I thought about leaving Wall Street. And I had done very well. I was managing director at Goldman, running the U.S. retail research practice. And in my last five years there, 94 to 99, was doing more and more research about the internet and internet retail, because I was convinced it was going to be huge. And it was the most exciting thing I'd ever seen. And at Goldman, I sort of had the equivalent of front row seats at Madison Square Garden hmm. watching, assuming the Knicks were good at the time, watching <laughs> the Knicks play. And it was exciting, but it was a spectator sport. I was a critic as opposed to an actor. And I always had that feeling gnawing at me that I wanted to try to build something the internet was such an exciting thing, and I wanted to be more of an actor in it. In addition, I was always bugged by the fact that Wall Street, while it has integrity about the fact that it's only about money, it's only about money. Mm -hmm. And there is way more to life than money. And my parents had raised me to try to make the world a better place in whatever way that I could, as corny as it sounds, and they mm -hmm. lived their lives that way. And I felt like I wasn't. I didn't feel like what I was doing was immoral, but I felt it was amoral. I was helping the wheels of capitalism spin faster, but not necessarily in a direction that I particularly believed in. And so part of my motivation also was to do work that was more aligned with my values. When I was working at Goldman, I was doing 20 hours, 10 to 20 hours a week of volunteer work in addition to that. And why not run a business that's more values aligned where I don't have to do penance on the side? So that was also part of the motivation. Yeah. Were you afraid when you started? Yes. You know, I had entrepreneurial experience as a teenager and as a college student. I ran my own lawn mowing business. I ran the university. I'm old enough. They were vinyl records, the record store, and turned it around from a money losing to a money making business. But 
you know, that was a $250,000 a year business. It's very different when you're starting out. And I raised money from friends of mine. And it was scary because I felt like an imposter. I felt like an actor pretending he was an entrepreneur. And I would pinch myself and say, you know, what the heck do I know about this? You know, it's all theory and what have you. So yeah, it was scary and it was depressing because as I mentioned earlier, it took four years for the business to make money all, you know, as an objective analyst looking at the business, I would say it's a flaming pile of crap, you know, in the first few years. And it really took a while to get it on track. You said something that is really intriguing. You felt like an imposter. How would any entrepreneur, I guess, unless you've done it already before, not feel like, I don't know if the right word is imposter, but it's the first time you're doing it. You've never done it. And that's probably the case for almost every entrepreneur. And most entrepreneurs, I don't think, would use that type of terminology. So that's kind of interesting to me. I think some of it was because I spent 14 years watching. You know, the more time you spend as a spectator, in some ways, the larger than life things can appear if you're going to try to do it yourself. Yeah, no, I could see that. What did your colleagues say at Goldman when you were leaving? They think you were crazy or they said, I want to invest with you or It's, it's all funny. I did get a glass jar full of nuts. And it, said, <laughs> it said David's nuts. So yes, I mean, to add to it, Goldman Sachs was going public and I literally walked away from millions of dollars by leaving when I did. I knew that but I would have had to stay for four years through a series of golden handcuffs. But I would say it was a mix. What was surprising to me is I remember confiding in one of my friends my deep, dark secret that one day I wanted to leave and start my own business, and he told me he wants to do the exact same thing. And so what was surprising to me actually was how common the idea of being an entrepreneur was among my analytical peers, but at the same time, these are folks who were making a very good living on TV, quoted in the papers, what have you. And, you know, it's the opportunity cost to leave is fairly high. Yes, yeah, it's very high, but you still did it. So this was well, really driving. The, I would, yeah. yeah, I would say the opportunity cost is very high if you measure things primarily through money. Mm -hmm. And that's not how I was raised. And mm -hmm. I tried not to get caught up in it. You know, I lived in the same apartment that I lived in since I got out of college, never bought a second home, never bought a fancy car. I always kept my break even low and kept my feet on the ground and tried not to have my values changed by the world of Wall Street. Right. So it took a while to become profitable. It was a hard slog. But were you happy once you started? Because you were fulfilling this dream that you had and you had given up. Even if money is not your primary motivator, you knew you gave up a lot. Was I happy? I don't know. I don't think happy is my natural state. <laughs> Tormented, possibly. Uh, That's funny. I think a lot about different options and different paths. And it was exciting at the beginning, but it was pretty stressful and it was hard work. I would say it started to feel really good once the business started making money and I started seeing people build careers at the company. That's been the most gratifying to me is watching folks and helping folks grow and develop at the business, which was not something that was a focus of mine when I started the company. Yeah. 
So when you look back at the early days, I'm sure you say, why did I do that? Or what was I thinking? Because there's a giant learning curve, even with all your experience. And I'm curious about your reflections over time. Maybe it was like right on the spot about what went wrong and why and what the lessons were in those early days in particular. So I would start with me. I worked with a consultant who uh, very romantically said to me, Dave, the fish rots from the head. And he was referring to opportunities that I had to improve the company culture by improving myself. And I think that was probably the single biggest thing that I had to work on was my nature to look at the glass as half empty and recognize that that's not inspiring. It's great if you're an analyst to identify what's wrong. Yeah, and it's, right. it's also very helpful as a CEO, but I had to learn how to tamp that down and be more positive and frame things in a more constructive way. So I think that was part of it. I would say the biggest strategic mistake that I made was growing the business too quickly. And we were far from alone in that. 90-some-odd percent of our competitors went out of business when the internet bubble burst in spring of 2000. We hung on. I took no salary for six years and had to put a fair amount of my life savings into the business to keep it afloat. But that was probably the biggest mistake, was trying to grow too quickly. And in part because we had competitors that had 10 to 20 times as much money as we did and were growing like wildfire, Red Envelope and a company called Azeba were two companies that raised 50 to $100 million and were competitive. They both went bankrupt. Red Envelope, I think, went bankrupt a couple of times. But that was the biggest mistake, was getting a little caught up in that and trying to grow too quickly. That was really the ethos of the time. What did they say? Go big or go, go home? Go big or go home, yeah. Right, but. and profitability meant nothing. You wanted to go public. Maybe you have somebody buy your business or at least you could cash out to some extent. It was almost like you're not creating a business. You were creating a financial instrument using a business. Not too dissimilar. Look at companies going public right now. I mean, there are a bunch of companies with multi-billion dollar valuations that are losing money. Thread up. I think The Honest Company, Poshmark, all these companies are losing quite a bit of money and have astronomical valuations. I was going to ask you to what extent you think what we're seeing now has been quite a big, quite a huge bull market, especially as we come out of COVID compared to the dot-com bubble. But that dot-com bubble was just a... I'm not going to call it unique because, you know, we have the tulip mania and other things that happened in history, but that was a total implosion in a short period of time. Yeah, I think we are starting to see what I expected, which was a bit of an ugly hangover. Somebody once told me, don't confuse brains in a bull market. You listen to executives and cheerleaders for these executives. And when business is great, it's brilliant management. And when business stinks, it's the weather or the economy or what have you. And the reality is for e-commerce over the past 12 months, why did the growth rates of many companies double or triple? It's because of COVID. And I'm in New York City. The streets are getting more and more active. People are waiting in lines 20, 30 deep to get into physical stores. I am very bullish long-term on e-commerce, but I think people who are buying e-commerce stocks 
in 2021, assuming that the growth of 2020 is going to be repeated. In fact, in some cases, I don't think you'll see growth from some of these companies. I think a lot of people are going to be disappointed short term. Yeah, it sounds like the type of analysis you may have done at Goldman. Are you surprised at how so many mainline traditional retailers have struggled in the world of e-commerce? I know some have done well, but I mean, there's a lot of bankruptcies from the JCPenney's and obviously Sears and Kmart and these giants as well, but many, many others. You've studied this very closely and now live it. Are you surprised to see the slow or very, very uneven move towards e-commerce by mainline traditional retailers? No, I'm not surprised. It is very difficult to reorganize your team to go after a different business and do it well. And it's hard to attract top flight innovative talent if you're viewed as a Neanderthal type company. Mm -hmm. And so it's not surprising to me. And also a lot of these CEOs because of the way they're compensated and evaluated, there's a short-term orientation, particularly for public companies and building a great e-commerce business may lose you a fair amount of money and make your stock price go down. And so it's tricky. So no, it's not surprising to me that traditional retailers have struggled. So not long after the dot-com bubble, we all had another gigantic thing to adapt to and deal with, and that's obviously 9-11 when you were in New York City, so it affected you even more directly. Can you share a little bit about what that was like? Actually, where were you on that day on September 11th? Do you remember? Yes, I actually do. I was in Union Square, 14th Street, so about two miles north of World Trade Center. And I was having breakfast with a woman from Evite, an online party invitation business about a potential marketing partnership. And my wife was taking our then one-and-a-half-year-old son to daycare right next to the World Trade Center and was in the stroller with him and called me to tell me that the World Trade Center had just blown up. And I was at this coffee shop called The Coffee Shop and looked at, I think I asked them to turn the TV on and saw the building burning, went outside into Union Square and actually saw it. And this guy said, yeah, I saw a plane just fly right into the building. And I found that hard to believe. Nothing like that had ever happened in my life. And then a few minutes later, while watching the building burn, I saw a second explosion. I hadn't seen the plane come from, uh, I think it was coming from the south. But anyhow, then went over to my office, let people know that we were going to be closed for the day. And then I walked down 7th Avenue to Ground Zero to see if I could help. And it was a surreal experience. I mean, there were papers and dust and ashes, like rain falling out of the sky. And the cars were covered in dust. It was quite an experience. So your wife and your son were very close. Yes. So how did they get out of there? She just turned around and headed home. As fast as possible. Yeah. Wow. Were you closed for a day or were you closed for longer than a day? I don't remember. What I do remember is that 
We use something called a T1, a high-speed internet connection, and all of those cables that were powered by Verizon melted because they were in lower Manhattan. So we lost our internet connection and had to literally run the business on a dial-up modem. I can't remember if it was 288 or 56K. A lot of people don't (laughs) know what that is anymore. Yeah. (laughs) So it was hard to run the business. And then I also remember, and I don't know how long this was, whether it was days or weeks, but we were planning to launch our first print catalog, and there was a lot of debate within the company that during such a somber time, how could we put out a catalog? How could we focus on such lighthearted things as giving gifts? And I felt very strongly that it wasn't being insensitive, as some people felt, but that gifts are a way of expressing appreciation and emotion and an opportunity for human connection, and that we should offer this to those customers who want it. We certainly were sensitive to what was going on around the city at the time, but I felt strongly that we should do what we do. And customers responded. I remember late night comedians for some period of time either were off the air or just weren't telling jokes. It was a different time. Yeah, it was unprecedented. And so running a business in your offices are around Union Square or further... So back then, in 1999, we were at 221 West 17th Street. So it was about two miles from Ground Zero. Yeah. And did your business change much because of 9-11 or how you ran your business? No. It made things operationally more difficult because of the lack of high-speed internet connection and also just it was an incredibly unsettling time, but I went against the popular vote and pushed forward with the catalog, and we went out with our first print catalog that holiday season, and it did very well, so we were able to operate. So you're talking about a catalog, which is also, actually, I was about to say it's an old idea. It is an old idea, but I'm just thinking about my mail today. I've got catalogs that are coming in, but that's part of your business model, and why is that? Because it works. Good answer. Um, So (laughs) I remember making a pilgrimage to uh, Virginia to kiss the ring of America Online. They were the gatekeeper of the internet, and company stocks would soar when they would announce marketing deals with AOL, America Online. And they were crazy deals. I mean, we met with them, and they wanted us to pay an arm and a leg for access to our target consumer. And Google didn't exist at the time. And there was no such thing as paid search back then. You know, Yahoo, I think it was goto.com may have been the first company to offer it. And it was considered anathema to the ethos of the internet to charge people to click on a search. So there was not much in the way of marketing opportunities, and those that existed, like AOL, were incredibly expensive. And so I was trying to come up with a way to make people aware that we existed Mm -hmm. in a cost-effective manner. And we tried a postcard, we tried inserts in Barnes & Noble boxes, and neither of those worked very well. And we found, for almost the cost of a postcard, If we printed enough of them, we could mail 32-page or 64-page catalogs into consumers' homes. And, you know, my initial reaction from our head of marketing was, what are you, crazy? You know, we're an internet company. We're not a 
print catalog, that's a dinosaur. You know, he said, look, let's see if it works. And he was right. You know, we tried it and it worked really, really well. It was way more efficient than online advertising. And you're still doing it today. 20 years later. Yeah. So we were talking about New York a little bit. You're a New Yorker and I think multiple generations before you that lived maybe in the same neighborhood. Same um, apartment. Same apartment. <laughs> yeah. It's one of these classic rent controlled. <laughs> yeah, it was my grandparents' apartment. So I still live in my, my well, that's, grandparents' apartment. That is very interesting. And that says something, I think, about other things you've brought up around values and what you care about. You've been active in New York City and particularly in your neighborhood in supporting the neighborhood. I think there's a park that you were raising money for and other things. And what's your neighborhood like? Well, the Lower East Side is a classic immigrant neighborhood. And so my great-grandparents and my grandfather and grandparents came over here in the early 1900s. And it's been a place, in my eyes, of opportunity for newcomers to New York historically. Lately, it's become more gentrified. Having said that, there's a real mix. There's a lot of low-income housing in the neighborhood. So it's very diverse. There's a large Chinese population. Traditional Chinatown is just to the west of us, but there's a big Chinese population, large black community, large Latino population, Jewish population, and then you know a lot of newcomers, people who've come in the last 20 or 40 years to gentrify the neighborhood. So Yeah. Uh, yeah. So is New York coming back from COVID? It is. It is. I mean, as I mentioned, walking around last weekend and riding my bike through the city, it's fascinating to see what New Yorkers are waiting in line for. So six, nine months ago, people were waiting in line for a COVID test. Mm. Now they're waiting in line to get into retail stores to Mm. shop for clothing or REI for sporting goods. So I'm confident New York will come back. I don't know about Midtown and Wall Street offices. I think those will have a tougher time coming back. And, you know, my hope is that New York becomes a somewhat less expensive city. And that's obviously a little scary from a tax based perspective. But, you know, if you're running a business in New York, you're competing for talent and you're team members are competing with Wall Streeters and other high-income individuals for their apartments and other services. So it's a tough market to build a business in. Yeah. You're also a B Corporation. Were you founded as a B Corporation or something you converted to? So B Corporations did not exist when we started in 1999. I learned about B Corps in 2006, actually from a company that operates on Dartmouth's campus, King Arthur Flower. Oh, we know King Arthur very, very well. Yeah, I'm a big fan. There are relatively few companies when you peel back the onion where they seem even better. As you go deeper, they are one of them. And the then CEO... Steve Voigt, I was talking to him about trying to find a standard for sustainability. And he said, hey, I'm working with these uh, folks who are developing something. I'd be happy to put you in touch with them. So I met the founders of B Corp a year before they launched and was really taken with what they were doing. They were former entrepreneurs, so they had a practical mindset. And had I come up with the standards, I would have come up with something virtually identical. 
And so I really liked what they were doing, found it inspirational, thought it was a great yardstick in terms of social and environmental impact to measure our business against. And I've felt from the beginning that it's really important for us to have a positive impact. We've been very involved as a business in advocating for a living wage, for a higher minimum wage. I've worked both on the federal and New York level, had a lot more success locally than nationally. And similarly for paid family leave, which we now have in New York and Uncommon Goods was very involved in advocating for that. And hopefully we'll have that on a federal level before too long. Yeah, paid family leave, now that you mentioned that, it is really unbelievable how far behind America is to equivalent, highly developed, advanced economies. Yes, and if you believe in family values, as many of my conservative brothers and sisters say they are, you would think that you would want to incentivize businesses and new moms and new dads to spend some time home with their babies. I mean, it's clear that it's good for the health and development of the child. I am Canadian and I have nieces and nephews in Canada that have little kids and they each get one year paid leave with a guarantee of coming back. Not absolutely the same job because things could change, but equivalent or higher. And I think they mostly have come back to the same jobs after that. And it's just so advanced as a way of thinking. And that's for the primary parent, which could be the mom or dad. And then the second parent still gets probably more than is normal here. I can't remember what it is, six or eight weeks or something like that for the second parent. And it enables, let's say in particular, working moms, it enables them to stay in the workforce so much more easily, which is great for wealth creation and for the economy. And gender equity. And gender equity. So, you know, you mentioned you're talking about environmental and social. We're talking about it now. ESG has become a big term. Environmental, social, and governance. And every big company seems to be talking about it. Places like, what is it, BlackRock talks about it in terms of investments. Is this something that was on the radar back when you were at Goldman Sachs or was looked at as some kind of crazy liberal idea? It was on my radar because that's Mm. how I was raised, Mm -hmm. but it was not something that many companies talked about. I mean, Walmart and Home Depot were considered enlightened retailers in that they empowered their workers, both gave them decision-making authority and also were generous with stock options. So that element, I would say, was part of the conversation, but not paying a living wage, not looking so much at global warming or climate change, environmental impact. It was not a focus. And it's really, I mean, everything is driven by your customer. And so who's the customer? Mm -hmm. It's the business customer and it's the investor. And when those folks care about it, then the CEOs will care about it. Yeah. Have you been surprised at, it's almost like a social movement. Now it remains to be seen how much action comes from this. You know, the business roundtable had this statement about maximizing stakeholder, kind of like quasi B Corp language in companies that are not at all run like B Corp. So some of it is window dressing, but I get the sense that some real change is happening. What's your sense of it? 14 years on Wall Street, if it won't make you a cynic, it certainly (laughs) will uh, reinforce skepticism. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to follow the money. And how much will shoppers be willing to pay? Will you pay more for something because it's healthier for you? Definitely. Will you pay more for something because it's better for the environment? I don't know. I hope so. 
you know, and we're certainly with our business trying to highlight sustainable elements and we're trying to be more sustainable in everything we do, you know, and I think we could be more skillful in marketing it. But, you know, I would say in general, our customer is most interested in the right product at the right price. I think there's more of an opportunity with people at their workplace because those are folks who have a deeper understanding of the company's practices to influence leadership and say, hey, I want to work at a company whose values are aligned with mine. So I would say I am hopeful, but, you know, big pronouncements, you know, talk is cheap. And so I'll be more impressed by actions than well, the announcements. The, the one thing I could say from my own experience, having taught MBA students now for almost three decades, is there's been a tremendous change in their mindset coming in the door. And they absolutely care a lot about environmental and social issues, diversity and inclusion. And the rubber meets the road when you see what companies they work for and what those values are and what they're going to do when a company doesn't have all the values or doesn't live up to the values they might espouse. And that's when you really find out. But they're so far ahead in terms of just their mindset compared to even five years ago. It's quite remarkable. But what have you seen? I mean, are they no longer going to the major investment banks and consulting firms? Have, they, has they that are, changed? Or? They are. Not as much because that's partly a reflection of the financial services industry. They go to tech, of course, the Googles and the Amazons and the Facebooks and lots of smaller companies as well. They go to consulting firms. And I think each of, say, my students will have to confront the reality of the business world, which doesn't always dovetail to their personal values. And the litmus test is, what are you going to do about it? Right. Can they create change from within? And I would say they probably have more power than they think they do. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, particularly if they get together with other like-minded people. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, we're just about out of time. So let me ask you kind of my wrap-up advice question. And it's more like advice to yourself. If you can magically go back in time to when you were 21 years old, let's say. So whatever you were doing at 21, still in college or about to graduate. And you can go back and say, you know, Dave, there's one thing you want to know about life, about the world, about yourself. If there's one thing you want to do or there's one thing you want to not do, what would be that advice you'd give to yourself at the age of 21? I would say be kind to yourself. <laughs> you know, my parents always raised me to believe in myself, and I think I have. I've certainly had self-doubt, but in general, believed in myself. But that glass half empty mindset can wear on you and wear you down because I'm my own harshest critic. And so I think just appreciating the things that go well and focusing on that as much as things that I can do better. Right. That's very interesting because people that are really goal oriented, task oriented, they always want to be better. They want to do better. I'm a little bit that way myself. And then you don't value the victories along the way. And they're right. not always a lot of them. So you have to value <laughs> each, each one of them. And actually, you can find small victories almost every day if you start to think about it. The problem is the opposite when that's all you ever do. <laughs> and that's when you get some of these CEOs that end up creating fantasy worlds and their companies fall apart around them. We're talking about the opposite problem. Well, Dave, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast sharing your thoughts, your ideas, and some of what you've done in your career with our listeners. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Sid. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three 
and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com, or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.